the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. People are so frustrated in this country. Free speech under fire. They're bringing drugs. How desperate the left has become. How desperate Democrats have become. become. They're bringing crime. Dissolution of the country. They're rapists. Sever the ties that unite us as a nation. With the challenges and crises that we face right now, this is not the time to divide this country. Hi, I'm Denzel Mitchell. I'm Avery Shivers. And I'm Tahi Wiggins. And this is Main Street Speaks, a podcast about rural news, politics, and history from the perspective of three college students from the northern neck of Virginia. Today, we will be speaking with Brian Cannon, a lawyer who is the executive director of Fair Maps Virginia, an organization that is advocating for independent redistricting in the Commonwealth. This past legislative session, Brian and his team were successful in passing an amendment that if a majority of Virginians vote in favor of it this fall, will implement an independent redistricting board that consists of a mix of eight state representatives and eight citizens will be tasked with creating fair, non-gerrymandered districts. Thank you. Thank you for being with, with us today, Brian Cannon. I'm really excited to talk with you about uh, the ballot measure that will be on the ballot this fall, Virginians that Virginians will vote on uh, that is going to implement, if passed, will implement a, a nonpartisan redistricting board uh, to, that would hopefully end gerrymandering in Virginia. So but before we get started, well, essentially, what is uh, one, one Virginia 2021? And how did you come to, to lead it? Uh, so One Virginia 2021 is uh, a bunch of folks from both sides of the aisle in 2013 got together, um, a lot of folks from, from Charlottesville, uh, and decided that they wanted to pick up the torch on redistricting reform, which is um, a, if you, it, hard to rewind back that far. But in 2013, basically, the reformers had just gotten their clocks cleaned. Not only had in Virginia, Governor McDonald appointed a toothless advisory commission that did really good work, but no one listened to it. And we got Republicans and Democrats voting overwhelmingly for gerrymandering in Virginia. It was a real mess. But also around the country, Project Roadmap was incredibly successful um, and really, you know, did a heck of a job thwarting the will of um, of the people in that. So uh, these folks got together. It was some folks, you know, League of Women Voters. It was Lee Middlenich who founded the Sorensen Institute. It was uh, Terry Cooper, who's um, uh, no longer with us, but he was actually one of the founders of the statewide Tea Party Federation, which is even remark- more remarkable given that the um, Republicans were so solidly in power at that time that he was willing to do it. So uh, League of Women Voters, uh, just a bunch of good advocates from all across the spectrum. And uh, they just said, look, these districts don't belong to politicians or parties. They belong to Virginians and we should change it so that that, that reality is reflected in our policy. How did you become... Fair Maps Virginia. Fair Maps Virginia is the ballot initiative, the Vote Yes campaign for uh, the thing we One Virginia has been working on for uh, the better part of a decade. So One Virginia spun it off to have a new legal entity that would be as transparent and accountable uh, as possible under the law, rather than trying to use what we already had. It's just it was kind of a cleaner and, and more transparent move to create a new organization, which also gave us a chance for what I think. It's a better name because I think Fair Maps gets a little bit closer to where we're trying to head. Can you walk us through a little bit of what it was like moving uh, moving this initiative through the legislature twice, uh, particularly as the party switched? What was that like? 
Sure. So in, in 2019, we were coming up on the kind of deadly, you know, the entering into the session of 2019, um, we were coming up on the deadline of if we don't start amending this thing now, we will not have the amendment finished in time for the 2021 redistricting. So if we don't, if we fail in, in, in the, in January, February, March of, of 2019, then we're really left without the, the most obvious remedy, which is a constitutional amendment. Um, so we got together a group of experts, um, a kind of a drafting committee of 10 different folks, uh, legal experts, uh, folks from all across the, this political spectrum to come up with and say, like, how do you do this fairly? Um, and they came up with a really, really good plan. And that good plan died immediately in the Senate P&E committee meeting um, when it was first presented. Um, there's a lot of politics to that that I could go into if you want. But the high level is this, is that Democrats... <clears throat> we're still in favor of reform overwhelmingly in 2019 because they were in the minority. And Republicans, while they had been in the majority for basically 20 years with a few minor exceptions, the Republicans were um, were starting to see the writing on the wall, not just of the blue wave, but of the redraw of a bunch of House of Delegates districts. And so everything started to look a lot more up in the air for Republicans. So what basically what they did is they adopted the uh, kind of compromise plan that that Senator Barker and Sasslaw uh, put forward, which is they're both Democrats, but the Republicans basically abandoned their plan, and I'll I would use air quotes around their plan, uh, and 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 adopted the Barker Sasslaw plan, um, and passed it, and they it had the advantage of twofold: one, um, it gets the ball rolling in 2019 like we had to do, or two, and and it, that was one part, but the other part is if the Democrats took back power, the Republicans would definitely prefer this plan as the minority party. This is like even Stephen redistricting. Um, they would definitely prefer that. Um, or the Democrats could kill it and they would get to call the Democrats hypocrites for quite some time. So uh, it was really a win-win move uh, for Republicans. Then it came around and then the, the Democratic Senate, of uh, then Democrats took back control. And in 2020, the Democratic Senate passed it fairly easily, 38 to two. But the Democratic House had some trouble um, there. Uh, we ultimately passed it 54 to uh, 46, and we had passed previous the previous year thir uh, 85 to 13. So it was a, quite a drop off from Democratic uh, legislators. What does this amendment really consist of? Uh, like in, in the specifics of it, like what does the amendment call for? And since politicians are still picking who is going to be on the board, how is this redistricting process more fair? I'll say that it's not hard to do better because the current process is so bad, right? Like this is a very, very low bar to do better. Um, but, uh, you know, basically the current process is this. It's the legislature, the party in power will draw districts. The governor signs off and there you go, your districts. It's just how a bill becomes a law. It's just the ugliest sausage making that, that occurs. When it comes to uh, the, the proposed reform, the uh, let me let me do a couple of, of language things because I heard Denzel say something that I think is really common at the, at the very top of this, and I want to make sure we're all speaking the same language here. So I don't say nonpartisan commission. I used to say that, but I I found that it it confused people. And one of the Republican uh, delegates who was vehemently against us challenged me one day, and I couldn't stand this dude. But he was just like Brian what's nonpartisan? Who the hell is nonpartisan and going to be nonpartisan on this? And I, I really like couldn't come up with an answer because even the best commissions, it's not that they're nonpartisan. They're partisan. They're just balanced evenly with good checks and transparency and things like that. Right. So 
I don't say nonpartisan anymore. I think the standard by which we measure the commission is how independent is it of the legislature with California, Michigan, Colorado earning top marks, with Florida earning like bottom of the barrel because the legislature still does it. You know, how far away can we get it from the legislatures, the, the, the legislators? Um, so the way I look at, um, so I don't say nonpartisan, I say either bipartisan or, or yeah, for this, I describe it as bipartisan, but I think independent is what people are looking for. And I think there's three ways to look at, uh, three kind of buckets to uh, look at reform in. One is who's drawing the maps, and in, in other words, how independent are they? Uh, two is what's the criteria by which you draw those the maps? And number three is what's the degree of transparency? Um, so on the first bit, you know, we had to compromise to get it through. Turns out legislators do not believe that they should not be in the process. They think they are very, very special and very important and know their communities really well and deserve to have a seat at the table. I completely disagree with that, but um, when you have to go through the legislature, that's one of the compromises we had to make. So this commission we got is, I'll call it half independent. Um, it's fiercely bipartisan, which is good because that prevents one side from getting over on the other and that ends partisan gerrymandering. But um, the commission is not as independent as I would like. It's half independent. It's eight legislators and eight citizens. Uh, and you need six votes of each block of eight to pass a map. So they're evenly divided by party. So at the worst, you have to get four Democrats or four Republicans to vote for a map. And that's that that takes us a long step far down the road to significant redistricting reform. The second piece, um, the second bucket I talked about was the criteria by which they do it. Um, we kept in the Constitution compact, contiguous, equal population. Obviously, all the federal laws regarding the Voting Rights Act, but the amendment goes one step further and enshrines uh, racial and ethnic minority community protections into our state constitution for the first time in 401 years. And that's as historic as it is important, um, and perhaps even more important, because we're speaking just a, you know days after Justice Ginsburg passed away, the federal courts might not always interpret the Voting Rights Act or the 14th Amendment's due process clause or equal protection clause in the same way. Um, and we should have an independent protection for racial and ethnic minority communities in our state constitution, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it is very acutely a problem that Virginia has, has had for, for quite some time. So on the second part, I feel really, really good about what we got, you know, half good about the first part, really, really good about the second part. And, and I feel really, really good about the third part, which is the transparency piece. We have open meetings, open data, no more smoky back room. Um, I mean, that's really where all this goes. It's, it's, it's the partisanship and the smoky back room that, that make redistricting so gross. And this amendment, while it's not everything I want, this amendment kills those two biggest problems in, uh, in redistricting is, is, you know, it makes it transparent and, and, and forces it to be bipartisan. So just to give some of the listeners and, and us as well um, a better idea of how the process works, but it, it will it be state legislators who select who is on the commission um, and how will that look? Four legislative leaders are, are going to be doing a lot of lifting to help identify Republicans, Democrats, um, and, and folks like that in, our, in this process. And the, the reason we do that is because in Virginia, we don't register by party. Out in California, if you are registered to vote, you are registered as a Republican or a Democrat, or they call it declined a state, um, which is basically their version of none of the above. Um, and so 
but we don't register by party in Virginia. And while I think that's net net a really good thing, because um, it allows me to vote in whatever primary I want to vote in, um, the problem being that uh, how do you identify an equal number of Democrats and Republicans to serve on a commission if you don't have party registration? Well, turns out one of the things that legislators or partisans are really, really, really good at is identifying who's on their team and who's not on their team. So the, the whole thought from this, and this was a borrow from our original plan that was like really, really good, um, was to run everything through the Democratic leader in the Senate and the Republican leader in the Senate and the Democratic leader in the House and the Republican leader in the House. That got modified a little bit. It's the Senate pro tem who is um, the Democratic, not technically the Democratic leader, capital D, capital L, but she's the, the uh, it's Senator Louise Lucas. And then on the uh, House side, it is not the Democratic leader, it's the Speaker of the House um, in this case. So obviously it would flip. The constitutional amendment just says majority next majority party. So it's not actually entrenching Republicans and Democrats. If we have some sort of party realignment, it would accommodate that. But I don't foresee that happening before 2021. So um, uh, not not a not a big point for the for the moment. But basically those four legislative leaders, and to, to be clear, it's it's uh, Louise Lucas and Eileen Fillercorn on the Democratic side, it's Tommy Norman and Todd Gilbert on the Republican side. They each pick two members from their own caucus to serve. And that's how you get the eight um, legislators on the commission. It's, it is a direct appointment. And quite frankly, as far as a reformer goes, I don't expect anything of those eight people except the fact that they will not let, if you're a Democrat, you're not gonna let a Republican plan pass. And if you're a Republican, you're not gonna let a, a Democratic uh, gerrymander plan pass either, right? That's the only thing I expect of those folks. Um, but then the other side is the citizen side, and I, and I think this is where we can really uh, plus it up and, and get a lot more. But even if not, they're evenly balanced by parties, so at the very least, they're just going to stop partisan gerrymanders. But the, the question of how to appoint them is tricky, right? Because you still need that that expertise of who's on you know who's on the red team, who's on the blue team. So we basically asked the legislative leaders to um, come up a, with a list of 16 people each which is a total of 64 eligible uh, citizens to serve on the commission. And then they, those 64 people are chosen by a selection committee of retired judges, five retired judges, the four legislative leaders each pick one, and then the, the four pick a, a fifth. And those five retired circuit court judges who basically sat juries their whole life, um, they, uh, they'll do this, the winnowing down from 64 to eight, evenly balanced by party. So it's an indirect appointment by the legislators there. Uh, the more indirect you can make it, the better. There's a couple of filters on who can serve, uh, and we'd like to add more, but there was some enabling legislation in there that, that was close to getting passed but got blown up at the last minute. However, the legislature's in session right now, and they could pass it tomorrow. Um, so if the legislature's interested in adding more filters, and I think uh, the numbers there overwhelmingly that they are, we just got to see if the House Democratic leadership is willing to do it. Um, we can have even more filters on who the citizens are. Yeah, what are some of those filters and what would you like to see passed as well? So the filters in the constitutional amendment are you can't be a, a, a member of, uh, you know, a legislative body, um, you know, like it's either Congress or, or uh, the General Assembly. Uh, you can't be an immediate family member of that. Um, what I would like to see added is that you can't also have been a member of those bodies, right? So a former delegate or something shouldn't be on the commission as a quote unquote citizen member. Um, uh, there's some other things like maybe you could do, and there, there's a long list of them that, that you could do. There's some wisdom or, or behind it or not, because if you exclude so many people, then there might be a, some sort of challenge to who can serve. 
um, but the um, legal, legally speaking, but the, you know, you probably shouldn't be a lobbyist or have been a lobbyist in some foreseeable amount. California has a great provision that I don't think will get through because I don't think the parties want it, but a really great provision that would say if you've contributed over, I don't remember what the number is, but X number of dollars to candidates in the last 10 years cumulatively that you can't serve. I love that idea. Um, so there's a lot of filters you they, they could put on that. Um, but I, I also think <clears throat> from just a structural standpoint, I don't think just having the words on the paper are good enough. You need a structure that promotes the things you want. And in this case, the selection committee, I think, gets us pretty far down the pike because, you know, I could, if you think about it this way, if I had to, if I were one of those legislative leaders and had to pick 16 people, you know, from a, from a just uh, classic hypothetical here, I think you could probably find one or two of your best friends to help you bury a body. In other words, go into a conspiracy with you, right? You could probably find the good friend to do that, but you probably can't find 16. And while I do believe that Louise Lucas and, um, and uh, Eileen Fillercorn have more friends than I do, um, I don't necessarily think you can find 16 people that would be absolutely blindly loyal to you. Um, and I do think that the folks that, that um, have the better credentials and are, are more, more nonpartisan in their approaches, even if partisans uh, net net, um, would, be, uh, would be the most attractive applicants for the selection committee to put on. So there's risk in every kind of process. Um, I think we've minimized it a decent amount, but there's steps we could take to go further. Just to follow up on that, if you don't mind, um, I have sort of two related questions. So the first is mm -hmm. just logistically, uh, you know, there are, <laughs> there are thousands of people that live in Virginia. Um, what, is, what, would the, what would the process look like of these leaders selecting 16 people? Is it just people that they happen to know? Is there some kind of application process? Are, they pool, are there pools that they will pull from? Are there any sort of provisions for that in the amendment or do you sort of lead it up, leave it up to the leaders to determine that process? So that's one. And then secondly, do you think that there are incentives for the leaders to try to choose people that maybe are democratic but nonpartisan um, or, or like attempted nonpartisan? Or do you think that there's a strong incentive to find people who are as resolute in their beliefs as possible? So to your last question, I, I really don't know. I think the best check we have on it is that it's public, who they recommend. So like that's a, a big part, right? So if you recommend a bunch of party hacks that aren't diverse or reflective of, you know, your party, then like you're going to face some real heat for that. So, um, but whether they nominate, I, I just don't think you can find, there just aren't that many experts in redistricting who are partisan, right? There are a few on both sides, but there's, it's a very, very small pool. So for, for, the, for your last question, I, I don't fully know, but I feel pretty good about the, the threshold for how many uh, people they have to recommend helping to generate a better pool. To your first question is how do they, how do people apply? Well, we, we have that answer. Um, but it hasn't passed into law yet. It goes with that. Some of those filters we talked about earlier about uh, enabling legislation, um, it will, ha they'll have to come up with something. Um, I, th I think everything's going to be run through the Department of Legislative Services, which is actually a, a pretty well-respected nonpartisan entity that drafts laws. Um, so I feel pretty good about um, them ultimately running it, but I'd certainly like the clarity that the enabling legislation provides. Just this question is going to touch a little bit on uh, some of the things you, you talked about because many many Democrats have come out against the ballot measure um, to 
to pass redistricting reform. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, I was when I was doing research, I saw that Linda Perriello, um, who was, I believe, the, the former chair of One Virginia in 2021, stated mm-hmm. that she won't be voting for it mm-hmm. uh, because she believed that it didn't include certain guardrails um, of you know who can serve on the board. So those filters you were talking about, um, she she didn't believe that it had it explicitly prohibited gerrymandering and um, and one of the guardrails that she thinks should be up there um, is that people of color should be guaranteed to be able to participate on the board, uh, be a part of the board. Um, And then her and these other opponents to the ballot measure suggest that we should wait until next legislative session um, to pass a a more fair amendment. So I just have two questions is because you already talked about some of the filters, you're trying to get those passed now. And of course, that's something that we can do in the future. Um, but what is uh, what was the amendment like before it was filtered or watered down, um, as some people describe it? What was it like? Like, what did it include um, that that these strong reformists um, would like to see in it? And what what is the problem with waiting until the next legislative session? Uh, to pass something like this, you mentioned that it's very hard to do it. So is that is that one of the problems, or is there something, is there something else uh, that that makes this time the most urgent? With regard to what was in the original kind of gold standard proposal, it was a a, a ten person commission. Um, I it's been a while since I've looked, but I'm ninety percent sure it had three no legislators, but three Republicans, three Democrats, and four people not affiliated with either, and you needed. I think um, seven votes to pass a map out of 10. So still a supermajority requirement, balance of parties, things like that. Um, the, the process was, it was an open application process at the top that we hope to still get. Um, from that, op- the people who apply, the legislative leaders get to pick, I don't remember what their minimum number was, but they, they, I think they got short, like jury strikes on the other side's pool. Like you can't pick these people. Um, which is something California did really effectively. Um, and then it would ultimately be decided by that group of five retired circuit court judges. Um, it's a pretty good plan. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a number of ways to do it. And as I mentioned at the top, there's a number of ways to do this better because the bar is so darn low. Um, but that's what we originally hoped for. And I, and I think there's still some, some hope that something like that gets through. The problem is, is that the, the, the fatal flaw we're facing right now is that our constitution gives the unfettered power to the General Assembly to do this. So legislature shall redistrict is what our current constitution says. And if you want to do something different, if you want to have an improved process, you have to change that part. And so um, if we don't pass this amendment, it doesn't change. Um, And then the legislature can draw however they want. Now, um, I think what's what's where where, uh, Linda Perriello and I disagree and, and, and we're friends and I have a ton of respect for her. Um, But where we disagree is she thinks the Democrats just won't gerrymander. And I think they will 100% for sure gerrymander, right? So, I mean, because basically, you know, I watched what the Democrats did in 2018 to try to remedy the Bethune Hill uh, court case where they produced a racial gerrymander as well. I watched what the Democrats did in 2011. Uh, I've watched what Democrats have done all over the country. Every time the party in power has a chance to gerrymander, they do 100% of the time. It's never gone another way. And so the idea that Democrats just will, you know, with a pinky promise, not gerrymander, doesn't hold water for me as a reformer. 
Um, and they wouldn't, have, and it sure as heck wouldn't have been a fair deal. I would, I'm personally a Democrat, but I surely never would have accepted that if the, the Republicans had been in charge. And I think that's the difference between where Linda and I are is that this is a fair deal when the Democrats are in the minority. It is also a fair deal now that the Democrats are not in the minority. Uh, and I think that's a, a big flag there. Let, let's play out the scenario. If Joe Biden wins the presidency, which seems like, you know, likely to happen, though certainly no guarantees in 2020 of anything. Um, Joe Biden wins the presidency. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think about 2008 when Barack Obama won. In 2010, the Democrats got their clocks cleaned, right? It was bad in 2010 and even 2009 um, in, in Virginia. So uh, the pendulum swings pretty fast in politics. And if you remove the number one, you know, generator of the blue wave, who is the president, the current president, um, then, then the, how does that go away? I don't think the Democrats just fold up shop and go away. I think they built pretty solid infrastructure, but there's going to be, uh, you know, a swing back on that on that pendulum. Um, and if that's the case, and we uh, wait to pass another amendment, like Linda is Linda Perriello is suggesting, then we run the risk of not having Democrats in charge. Well, I think the bulk of Democrats actually do want independent redistricting. The bulk of Republicans don't. Um, it's just kind of, you know, um, antithetical to their kind of party philosophy as a whole. There, there are some really good Republicans who do want independent redistricting, but there's just not enough to make up the gap uh, to, to do it. So if we defeat this amendment and try to pass a subsequent amendment, then, um, then I think we really put any, I mean, it's, it's the bird in hand argument, right? We really put any amendment in jeopardy for doing that. Whereas if we pass this amendment, which ends partisan gerrymandering, no one side's gonna ever be able to get over on the other side in this proposed amendment structure, and you get rid of the smoky back room because now everything's public, um, you really lose the two biggest pieces that whatever party's in power holds on to the most, which is their ability to screw the other party and their ability to do it secretly so nobody knows how gross the sausage making is. So I think to get more reform in the long run, we're in a much better shot if we got, uh, if we get this amendment in place now, and you minimize the risk of the pendulum swinging back, and uh, and the and the Republicans sinking this, or doing what the Republicans tried to do in 2013, um, which is uh, the Democrats basically gerrymandered the state Senate in 2011. Um, the Repub then it got the the Senate was even. Uh, got, there was like a retirement or something. There was, the Senate became even. But one day in, in January of 2013, Senator Henry Marsh, African-American long-serving senator from Richmond, he went up to President Obama's second inaugural, which is, of course, a, you know, something awesome that he got to do. And, and he had to miss a day in the, in the state Senate to do it. So there you go. Um, but the, uh, but the, the Republicans had a one-day majority because they also had the lieutenant governor. Um, so they had a one-day majority in the state Supreme Court, and they rammed through a mid-decade redistricting. Um, there's nothing prohibiting that in the Constitution, and but for the good graces of, of Republican Speaker Bill Howell, who I usually don't have anything nice to say about, um, you know, but for his statesmanlike stance to say no, we are not going to do mid-decade redistricting, uh, we would have had a mid-decade gerrymander in Virginia, not unlike they did in Texas the previous decade. So um, if you want to stop the, you know, this kind of partisan food fight back and forth, pendulum swinging. There's one answer, and it's yes on one um, this, this election season. Post this, I mean, I guess post this amendment, or even just if in the next couple of months, like what is next for gerrymandering reform 
Um, that can be in regards to Virginia or, you know, nationally as well. So, Avery, we've got what this amendment does is it creates a significant and transparent space for citizens to be involved. Um, not only does it require public hearings and have space for citizens with an equal say on the commission, um, but it's obviously got the transparency and, and things that we would want as watchdogs. However, what I've seen in other states as they do it is not only do you have to get the laws on the books that create the right structure and open the spaces up, uh, but you have to get people to walk into those rooms and take those those seats, right? So uh, the implementation phase of this, which is what the One Virginia 2021 Foundation is working on right now, is incredibly important. Um, I hope we implement it with this, you know, guaranteed space and, and transparency that the amendment provides. But but even if we don't, we still have to create, uh, you know, get folks to to engage in this process. Um, and I think for the first time ever uh, that the um, process will be much, much, much more um, at least available to citizens just based on the technology piece, right? The technology has always been in kind of the, the high priesthood of gerrymandering consultants, and it costs like $10,000 a license to get the license to the software that is the really good gerrymandering stuff. But now this decade, it's out actually out in the hands of, of the people, and there's a lot of online tools by which you could do it, and a lot of universities who are evaluating maps and plans um, just for free, just to do it, to put the information out there. So um, what I hope is, is that, you know, people become really, really engaged. It is uh, uh, in this process and have community meetings, do community mapping. The Princeton Gerrymandering Project has a, a tool called Representable that's really cool about how do you map your own community. One of the big criteria in this um, process will be um, communities of interest, which is um, a really important criteria, but it's also really squishy, right? What is a, you know, writing a community, what a community of interest is into a law is a difficult and long exercise. Uh, they did it and we have it, but, um, but it's, it's tricky. Um, and so we need people to actually show us what they believe their, their communities are so we can, you know, stop carving up these communities seven ways to Sunday like we do in the current process. So what's next is citizen involvement, citizen involvement, citizen involvement. And then what I hope is a lot of our state friends around the country that, that were uh, gearing up for reform, but got cut short on signature collection by COVID, right, in states where you can do signature collection, uh, they've got to get up and running and, and get it going, going. And I hope what they, they see, while it won't be in time for their redistricting uh, next go round, probably, it depends on the state, um, what what I hope you see is that a movement built up and an awareness built up that they will also, no matter what way they're going, will have a really active and engaged citizen in this process. I mean, the number one reason why the politicians have been able to get away with this for so damn long is that it's a dirty deed done once a decade, and then they think we all forget about it, right? And and what what one Virginia's done, what we've sought to do, what around the country folks and performers have been doing is making sure people don't forget. And for our final thoughts today, we just want to remind you that early in-person voting in Virginia has started. Uh, it lasts from Friday, September 18th, so this past Friday, and ends on Saturday, October 31st. And you can always check to see if you're registered, and if you're not registered, make sure to do so by Tuesday, October 13th. Thank you so much for listening today. I'm Tahi Wiggins. I'm Denzel Mitchell. And I'm Avery Shivers, and we'll see you next time.